Jug Burkett is a businessman in Dallas, a Vietnam vet, and about 10 years ago he was in charge of a campaign that was trying to build a memorial to honor Vietnam vets from Texas. It wasn't easy. The immediate public reaction was, why should we give money for those bums? So Mr. Burkett started doing research so he could prove to people that most Vietnam vets are not bums. They have jobs, they didn't go crazy in the war, they're leading utterly normal lives. Then right in the middle of doing that, there was a murder here in Dallas. A vagrant killed a policeman at a, at a traffic stop. And the headlines basically said Vietnam veteran goes berserk. And for a week, there were follow-up stories about how Vietnam made him do it. You were in the situation where this was going to hurt your fundraising efforts. Well, it was hurting my fundraising. I mean, every time a bad story like that appeared, I would get kind of heckled by the people that I was trying to get money out of. Hey, Burkett, I saw another one of your boys went, went crazy last night kind of thing. Mr. Burkett is not the kind of man who sits by and idly watches things go to hell. He took action. Anyway, I checked this particular fellow's in, uh, individual military record and turned out he never served in Vietnam. He'd only been in the Navy three months and he got kicked out on a psychological charge. We live in a world full of people faking this thing and that, and it turns out that spotting a fake Vietnam vet is one of the easier lies to get to the bottom of. Mr. Burkett started routinely checking the bona fides of anybody in the news who claimed to have served in the war. He claims that he's found hundreds of fakers. He discovered some famous people fibbing about their service records to buff up their public images, like actor Brian Dennehy. He found defendants in murder cases claiming to be war heroes, hoping to beat the rap. Or, alternately, claiming the war made them crazy and they can't be held responsible. He found big public events, misreported. You remember the killing up in Edmond, Oklahoma? It's one of the first mass killings in the post office. 14 postal workers killed. Sure. Uh, well, again, Vietnam veteran goes berserk story. I checked the man's military record. He never served in Vietnam. And often what's amazing about these cases is the outrageousness of the lies. VA officials and career officers who fabricated and exaggerated among people who could easily catch them out. A soldier who's quoted extensively in the book, We Were Soldiers Once and Young, a history of the Battle of Vietnam's Idrang Valley. There's a man in there named Kreischer who's right in the middle of the battle, and of course that thing is an oral history type thing, skips around and he's talking, they're talking about being on the tree line and all this thing. And Kreischer, after the war, actually founded their alumni group, you know, started that. He then uh, became a big fixture in the 1st Cav Division organization, ultimately became its president. And somebody gave me a tip that, you know, this may not all quite be on the up and up. And I got his military record. The guy had been discharged four months before that battle. He wasn't in the battle and yet had convinced everybody who was in the battle that he was with them shoulder to shoulder. I mean, he convinced the people in the, the same squad, the same platoon. He convinced the company commanders. He convinced. And I mean, not only did he convince them, they all elected him their, their president. That's because the person who has to convince people that he is the real thing is going to do a much more aggressive job of being the real thing than the person who actually is the real thing. You are going to know more about that battle than the people that were there. You're going to consume everything written about it. You're going to send off for things. You're going to watch the documentaries. You know, the guy who was there, it, it just, this was an episode that flashed by and he went on to the next thing. Well, today in our program, The Real Thing, Stories of people drawn to some idea, some picture, some thing that they just want to be. Some people doing it innocently, some less innocently. And how easy it is to slip from one to the other. From WBEZ Chicago and Public Radio International, it's This American Life. I'm Ira Glass. Act one of our program today, My Life with the Thrill Kill Cult. 
in which a woman, as part of her job, starts hanging around with some gang members and slowly finds herself changing the way she dresses, changing the way she talks, changing her cigarette brand to theirs. Act two, Black Like Me, the story of hockey and basketball and what it means to be really black. Act three, Drawl, what's it mean to talk like a real Southerner and why one multi-million dollar industry can't seem to figure it out. Act four, Real Love, an illustration from Sandra Lowe of the rule that if it seems too good to be true, well, maybe it isn't. Stay with us. Act one. Act one of our show today is the story of somebody who tried to get closer to the real thing and tried, and why, in the end, it did not go too well. Kelly McEvers was a newspaper writer here in Chicago and started to get interested in stories that she was hearing about girl gang members. Now, she was somebody who did not know much about the gang world, but she got an assignment and tried to get closer to the real thing. I bought a $50 car. It was a beat-up 1983 Dodge Shadow, and uh, I started just sort of riding around the neighborhood. I'd had a couple of social workers through friends who'd said, you know, if you stop by this one corner and ask for so-and-so, maybe he'll help you meet so-and-so. So I, that's how I did it. I'd go in the afternoons in my $50 car and just sort of drive around and ask for people. And uh, my first good connection was a, a two twins, a um, set of twins, um, over in the Humboldt Park area. Um, I drove up in my car, and they thought I was um, a custy. Custy meaning? <laughs> meaning uh, someone who wants to purchase drugs. Um, custy, short for customer, I guess. Um, so they came running up to my car, and I said, you know, they're like, you straight, you straight, what you need, what you want, you know, and I was like, well, it's not really what I'm doing here. I've, I'm a friend of so-and-so's, and, you know, this is I'm a reporter, and I want to know about girls. And they said, oh, you want to know about girls? And they jumped in my car, and we went riding around, and, and that's how it got started. And so at first, when you were hanging around with them, you, you kept a little glossary for yourself? Yeah, it was pretty um, it was pretty academic. I tried to write down all of the strange words that they said that I didn't understand, and then, of course, use them in a sentence as well. Wow. Um, How very 11th grade of you. <laughs> I know. What would you do when you just hang out with them? Hanging out is a lot of driving around and seeing who's where and who's doing what with whom. And then going to the next spot and gossiping about what you saw at the last spot. Right. It's, it's, they're 17 years old. There's really not that much going on. They don't go to school. They don't work. There's just not a lot to talk about except each other. And... Always, there was always someone fighting with someone. There was always some sort of drama going on at any given time in the day. Some girl was mad at somebody else. And, and it was, it was more that it was different than anything I'd ever known than it being, you know, really this criminally exciting experience that I thought it was going to be. Well, it sounds like the excitement was simply the excitement of being in high school, even yeah. though they weren't in high school, oh, but, yeah. being, but basically it was the excitement of being 17. Mm-hmm. Slowly, and I don't know 
when this started to happen, because I, I really wasn't conscious of it. The only reason I know it happened is because my friends tell me now. I started to dress a little bit differently. Um, I started wearing lots of sports t-shirts and jeans and sweatpants and platform shoes and pulling my hair back and wearing darker lipstick um, and just starting to fit in, trying to fit in. Um, all for the sake of the story, of course, in my mind at the time. Um, How are you talking? Just a little bit with an edge. Um, hey, Kelly, what's up? How you doing, Pistol? Oh, what's going on? You know, just a little bit. I mean, maybe that sounds like a lot, but, um, you know, if you're standing around with a group of people, you want to sort of fit in. Um, a little bit of that, you know, a little bit of damn, you know, oh, look at him. He's fine. You know, maybe not fine. I wouldn't say it like that, but just a little fine, you know, something and definitely sort of a little more head movement and gesturing that I wouldn't do before. At one point, you took them to, to this restaurant, Leo's? Yeah. Okay, this is this sort of hipster restaurant yeah. here in Chicago. Mm -hmm. And so what happens? Um, we're talking about... I mean, I'm sort of doing an interview with them, but um, this turns into a very funny conversation. They're very loud and opinionated. And um, at one point, uh, a young woman who looks like a rock star, you know... Um, as says to Linda, this this girl that I'm interviewing, can is anyone using that chair? And she's like, "Yeah, my foot." And um, she's just kidding, really. Um, but this girl's very upset and sort of offended. And she's like, "No, no, no, you can have my chair. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding, honey." And she's like, "Yeah, whatever. It's okay, or something. You know, like I don't need your chair anyway." And and it, it was so funny to me because I got to be on their side of it. I was with them as they were fighting with someone who normally would be me, I guess. So, so how far did it go? There was working with a photographer and uh, you know, she had just come on as a photographer. Um, from another city. I was really trying to make a good impression. I was trying to be very professional about the whole thing, and I feel so bad because I think I sucked her into this whole thing. Um, and so uh, one night we were driving around with a bunch of people on our way to the beach, and we had two carloads of people, and she was driving. And uh, all of a sudden the, the, uh, the other car full of mostly gang guys, we were with some gang guys too, um, started racing us. You know, they took off from the light and started to you know, fool around. We were going down Fullerton Avenue, a very busy street going eastbound toward the lake. Yeah. Um, and so the guys in our car were like, come on, Heather, come on, you can do it, you know, just bust through these lights. And she's like, no, I can't do that. No, I can't do that. So I'm behind her going, come on, Heather, come on, we really got to do this. I mean, they'll really think we're cool, you know. I mean, that wasn't what I was saying, but that was what I was thinking. Like, you've got to do this, Heather. You have to do it. And I mean, she didn't want to do it, and she did. She you know, she did. She, she ran the lights. She ran she the lights. She raced up she Fullerton Avenue. She drove 75 miles an hour on Fullerton Avenue. And she won. 
<laughs> and so were you right? Did they respect you after that? I don't think they respected us. I For the night, yes. Did it, did it last throughout these months where I thought I was going to get this great story? Probably not. That night, yeah. Oh, Heather, you're so cool. We got back to the neighborhood. You know, she was... She was very popular that night, you know. You should have seen her go, you know. We didn't think a white chick could do that, but, you know, that sort of thing. Did it occur to you at any point during that that I have crossed a line? No. Not then. There was a point, and I don't know when it was, that I just sort of stopped stopped taking notes, stopped interviewing people, um, and just sort of started living with them and just you know and not being someone who was documenting them um and and when you think about it like what what happened i guess i just thought everything was becoming a means to an end that the more time i spent with them i would eventually have that one experience that then i would take notes i think that's how i explained it to myself. You kept expecting that there might be some other deeper gang experience than right. the one you were having? Mm-hmm. It's interesting because cause in a way what you're saying is that you expected that this just sort of hanging around, well, this isn't the real gang life. The real gang life is still those fights and shootings yeah. which are about to happen. So you're expecting that at some point I'm going to be so inside they're going to take me to that. Yeah. Not realizing that the actual gang life is actually just hanging Hang around, around on the street gossiping about who is who's 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 whose girlfriend and selling drugs and, selling and fighting drugs. about who should have the drugs and who owes who ten dollars and who slept with whose boyfriend before you got into the situation i mean what did you think the appeal of that life would be a gang life i thought it would be like i said more much more criminal i thought i would see big gang fights <laughs> like you know not like the jets or anything in west side story but i really thought that i would see groups of people fighting each other and they i've heard numerous stories about these types of fights but i never saw them you know so from my initial even from my initial interviews the the stories that i was hearing about what was going on in these neighborhoods um i thought i would see that i never saw um anyone get hurt um, I saw a drive-by shooting uh, blocks away, um, a car driving by and shooting at someone. They weren't hurt. I'm saying this like I'm disappointed. Um, you know, I didn't see this this overly criminal life that I thought I was going to see. And is that because it wasn't actually going on? Well, yes, at least in this particular gang. It's about business. It's about making money and selling drugs. But, but- but selling drugs is a criminal activity. I mean, yeah. Seeing them sell drugs is witnessing a criminal <laughs> business. Mm-hmm. I guess I became as sort of blasé about it as everyone else in the neighborhood. Did you worry at any point that, 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 that you were fetishizing, that it's easy to fetishize... Um, what what these lives are like yeah yeah definitely um T- tell tell me about that yeah when it made really great anecdotes 
And people thought it was very funny. I mean, it's, it is funny. It's also very serious what their lives are like and what they, you know, even though they just sort of hang out and, you know, sell a couple drugs here and there, they still know what it's like to, you know, see your boyfriend, find your boyfriend dead in a car. Death is always sort of present. Is it your impression that the fantasy is uh, spinning through their head as well? Yeah, absolutely. How do they see it? I believed their perception of themselves. They see it as very, you know, the life, the world. You know, we, we, you know, you don't, you have to live the life to know the life. Um, this very, very hard place to be, yet somewhere they would, wouldn't, you know, they wouldn't rather be anywhere. They, they wouldn't be anywhere else. Um, in their minds, is it, is mm -hmm. it, is it this glamorous mm -hmm. criminal yep. outsider life? Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, but is the life that you're leading the life that you're actually leading or the life that you tell yourself you're leading? Yeah. For me at the time, it was the one I was telling myself. I was like, well, and for them. Yeah. But I mean, like, I think it's easy to make to make that sound sort of silly. But but I have to say, I mean, there are a lot of people who are going through life with like a little movie in their head mm -hmm. that's that's different than what's actually happening. So maybe I shouldn't be so upset about doing this. <laughs> I mean, it's just, I thought I thought and still do think that I have the greatest job in the world when I did this story. You know, if I can do this, if I can hang out, if I can become somebody else for a summer. I mean, that's uh, that's a great job. Kelly McEvers. I am a cliche. Two, Black Like Me. Well, our program for today is about what happens when you try to turn yourself into the real thing, some notion of the real thing, an idea which is always a kind of fiction, a kind of cliche. Glenn Lowry is a professor at Boston University. He's written a fair amount about black people trying to define what it is to be a real black person. He does not like the idea of cultural uniformity. I remember once actually defending the notion that if a black person likes Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, then that is still a black thing to do because a black person is doing it. He rejects a kind of rigid cultural conformity, as I say. But recently he had this experience with his son. Oh, this was in suburban, south suburban Boston. We were walking in one of the forest preserves around here uh, a Sunday uh, mid-afternoon. Uh, it was in the wintertime and, uh, you know, just to get out and find something to do. So we'd driven into the forest and parked and we're just walking along. And, uh, yeah, we stumbled on this frozen lake. And there were guys out there playing hockey. And uh, my son, who at the time uh, was probably three or four years old, was really interested in what was going on and started squealing and straining to get away from me. He would have run out on the ice and joined him if I'd have let him. Um, and all I could think about was, you know, all of these guys are white. <laughs> they were all 
um, you know, New England guys uh, who like to play hockey. And I didn't want my son out there doing that. I wanted him to, you know, play basketball or something <laughs> respectable. Some of those things die hard. And uh, even, uh, even when I had this intellectual position, rejecting that kind of imposition of cultural uniformity in the name of blackness, Still, when it came down to my kid, you know, and what his enthusiasms would be, I had rather hoped they'd be, you know, uh, closer to something that I could recognize from my growing up on the south side of Chicago. Uh, sadly, my kid is growing up on the south side of Boston, you know. John Simpkins grew up in Lexington, South Carolina, a small town in a segregated black neighborhood. It was tightly knit. On his block, six of the houses were relatives. But when he went away to college at Harvard, he found that other black students had a very different picture of what it meant to be black in America. The students who weren't from small towns had this very definite image of blackness and what it meant to be an African-American. And in most cases, that image was rooted more in Western Africa or in Africa in general instead of the South. And I thought the ironic thing was that Students who weren't from the South tended to look down upon the South if you weren't from Miami or, or Atlanta or one of the huge southern cities. Um, anyone who wasn't from any of those areas was sort of viewed as being kind of backward. In their view, was it almost an inauthentic black experience? I think they viewed it as being a powerless black experience. Um, there was an embrace of this sort of radical black nationalism, at least the the words of radical black nationalism, with very little of the actions of radical black nationalism. What did their backgrounds tend to be? Where were they from? Most of them tended to be from cities, uh, mostly northern cities. A lot of them were from, at least in, in my mind, uh, fairly well-off or, or at least middle-class families. And as far as you were concerned, was it that the, um, the the sense of identity and group identity that they wanted, to, that, that's something that you felt like you just had when you were growing up in the South in a small town? Right. We do live in a community where, you know, we're the only black family on this block. Now, the school that um, um, our boys go to is uh, a thoroughly integrated school. I mean, 25% of the student body is Japanese-speaking. Hmm. But... Um, the the kind of uh, close-knit and sort of all-encompassing experience of a black community, which both my wife and I knew growing up, is not something that they're ever going to have. And yet, we think the issue of race is sufficiently important. We want them to be able to feel comfortable with their racial identity, to be able to, you know, not have to get to be 18 years old and then go off to college and all of a sudden determine that they're going to have to find out what this blackness is about. That was one of the more disturbing aspects of it, and that there was this attitude of uh, you know, hip radicalism embraced by people who really hadn't experienced what it meant to be on the other side of that coin. The other side being? Being growing up either, whether in the city or, or even in a small town, in a lower middle class or lower class family. And did you view a lot of this as just posing? 
I viewed a lot of it as posing. I, I, I thought that there was little opportunity to discuss sort of the range of what it meant to be a black person in America. I mean, one of the things that my wife and I live most in fear of is that we're having neglected attention to this question earlier in the children's life. They will then rebel later on and, and lapse into some kind of formulaic blackness uh, that uh, is uh, stilted and uh, narrow. You know, we want them to think you can learn the Japanese language or the Arabic language for that matter, or you can learn to play the cello and still be black. There's nothing unblack or uncool about any of those activities. Is there a part of you where, where you feel like your, kid, your kids are missing something by not growing up in a segregated black community? Yeah, they're missing something, uh, but it's okay. I mean, this is the way of the world. Um, there are benefits and there are costs, and I think the costs outweigh the benefits of living in that kind of um, society. Um, our kids take a lot of stuff for granted. They just assume that the world is their oyster. Yeah. They don't have to, you know, overcome some barriers or to make some discovery that they can do anything. Uh, they take it for granted that everything is possible for them. Um, and I don't think that kind of um, sensibility can be fostered uh, when you're living in a ghetto. Uh, it's very clear that everything is not possible for you. That's why it's a ghetto. A lot of them grew up in integrated environments. And in, in a few cases, there were even kids who had gone to the best schools and, and had the best educations. I mean, from Exeter or Andover, schools of that sort, who uh, came to college and it sort of became their political awakening. But what I found interesting was that once college was over, they return to this this lifestyle that they had led before they left to go to college. Explain that a little more. What do you mean? This is a lot, this is where a lot of the comparisons between the black middle class or the black student population at Harvard and the sort of white middle class students really comes into play and that's especially during the 60s uh, when a lot of white students went away to school and engaged in uh, sort of experimental activity uh, they they left and took jobs in the corporate world or a lot of people would say that they sold out and I don't even think that that's necessarily the case but the same things happened with the black students at Harvard and that there was a lot of posturing there there it was a heavily politicized environment but really once the rubber met the road uh, those were the same students who took jobs on Wall Street or who went to law school or who went to business school so, so their, so their college uh, activism was just a little uh, pleasurable hiatus from the the identities that they had had before and the identities they were going to have after. Right, right. I know that my boys will be black in a way so very different from that which characterized my own life, and that. Um, my, my thinking now is that the best thing is that they wear that racial identity lightly. Not that they be 
um, indifferent to their blackness or ashamed of it or, you know, look at it as uh, an irrelevancy, but that, you know, I'd hope that they would be able to be black in a way that leaves them flexible and adaptable and open uh, and uh, not uh, parochial and narrow. Gung Lowry and John Simpkins. Coming up, a man calls Robert De Niro chicken to his face. No, not really to his face, but it's still kind of interesting. That's in a minute from Public Radio International when our program continues. This is American Life. I'm Ira Glass. Each week on our program, of course, we choose a theme, invite a variety of different kinds of people to tackle that theme with a variety of different kinds of stories. Today's program, The Real Thing, stories of people trying to live up to some ideal or refusing to. We've arrived at Act 3 of our program. Act 3, Drawl. There are tens of millions of real Southerners in this country. They shop, they live among us, they look just like you and me, my friend. But one industry does not seem to notice their reality. Writer Mark Shoney is a Southern expatriate who has noticed. My wife and I, since we've been in lockdown with each other over these past nine years, have developed a bit of shorthand. If one of us says something the other has heard so many times before that tears of boredom flow, the victim has the right to protest. The victim says, that's on the tape, as in, that's on your tape. The list of stories and obsessions you've rewound so often I could sing along with them in my sleep. But if we're lying in the queen size at night, watching TV, and chance on some misbegotten soup of dropped R's and fake I's that's supposed to be a southern accent, my tape starts jumping. It must be heard. I must blurt, Foghorn Leghorn! Foghorn Leghorn! My wife says, tape, and we change the channel. For me, all that is cornball about movie southern accents, all that is fake, is embodied by that would-be Mac Daddy of the barnyard, the animated chicken known as Foghorn Leghorn. He was conceived as a parody of the genteel Old South cliches from movies like Gone with the Wind. He was a preening dandy and a fool for the ladies. Go away, boy, you bother me. I got work to do. The late, legendary Mel Blanc didn't try and do an actual southern accent. You better, I say, you better keep a sharp eye on us chickens. He was spread thin being a Martian and a putty tat and a Tweety Bird, and this was a satire starring a big white rooster. It wasn't about sounding real. 
Sixty years later, though, actors are still speaking Foghorn, and they think it is real. I'm an authority on Southern accents because I'm a typical rootless modern Southerner, meaning I was born outside the South, just like Newt Gingrich and Dick Army, and moved as a kid with my Midwestern parents to a brand new subdivision chopped out of the swamp in southeastern Virginia. A babysitter taught me what y'all meant when I was seven years old. In high school, my rebellion against my liberal college professor dad was to hang out with drug-dealing rednecks. I whimpered in the back seat with a beer clenched between my thighs as they drove the back roads at 100 miles per hour, swerving through the swamp fog, their eyes closed and giggling. But as long as they looked and talked like Alan Collins of Leonard Skinner, as long as they had that mean, feral glamour, I thought they were cool. I talked like them on purpose. It thrilled me when a guy on my school bus grunted, Groundhog? My mama don't eat it, but my daddy do. I went to college a thousand miles away in Nashville and heard a stronger, twangier accent than the coastal burr I grew up with, and then moved to Georgia for a few more years of seasoning. By the time I left the South, I had a pretty good grasp of the range of regional dialects. And I knew that the movies had them all comically wrong. I would argue that nearly every vowel that comes out of nearly every actor's mouth is wrong. But for outsiders, here are the easiest problems to spot. Let's take Keanu Reeves in Devil's Advocate. Is it your testimony, Ms. Black, that between the hours of 6.10 and 9.40, you were engaged in sexual congress with the defendant? Well, maybe that's too easy. How about someone who has never actually turned down a script, like Dan Aykroyd? He played the son in Driving Miss Daisy. I'm afraid that my loss up here and my gain down here have given me an air of competence I don't really possess. <laughs> Leaving aside all the other things wrong with this way foghorn soundbite, very few white people in the South still drop their R's. They say here, not here. A linguist at the University of Georgia told me, if you want to find somebody with that old plantation accent, you're talking about people 75 years old. A friend in Atlanta was more emphatic. Those people are dead. Before they died, they were rich, or they lived in the coastal or Piedmont areas of the South. Up in the hills, they always said they're ours. And now in the age of seven hours of TV a day and the air conditioner and the massive influx of interlopers like me and Newt and Dick, nearly every white devil in the South has followed suit, especially white devils under 50. We say R. Lesson two. My name's Forrest, Forrest Gump. My mom always said life was like a box of chocolates. There are two kinds of eyes. The eye sound in a word like life or like or night or nice is different from the eye in five or ride or time. Real Southerners make a distinction between the eyes. My experience in three states over 20 years was that they said life and they said time. Lifetime, not lifetime. Not many people said laugh or lack. If they did, they were considered hillbillies. And in fact, they almost always really did hail from Appalachia or maybe a piney wood town in East Texas. But in the movies, even a kid from a fine old big-columned Alabama home like Forrest Gump says laugh is like a box of chocolates. Life was like a box of chocolates. Lesson three. The South is really big. People from Savannah and the coal fields and the bayou don't talk the same. 
and they're not usually in the same room unless they're on vacation in Florida, which is another part of the South. But in the movies, people with radically different accents turn out to be mother and daughter or lifelong neighbors. Listen to the way Dolly Parton, Sally Fields, and Julia Roberts pronounce color in Steel Magnolias. Fields is supposed to be Robert's mother. What are your colors, Shelby? Her colors are pink and pink. My colors are blush and bashful, Mama. Once upon a time, I couldn't figure out why the actors and directors in L.A. and New York couldn't spend any time listening to actual Southerners talk, because if they did, they learned very quickly how far the film dialect had drifted from reality. But after I moved to New York, I realized that I was just living amid hicks again. This time they were urban hicks, and the world outside their holler was one big movie set. The South was a movie. If you went there, you spoke a language invented by a British woman named Vivian Leigh, also known as Scarlet or Blanche, with an assist by New Jersey's Rod Steiger as the racist sheriff, and San Francisco's Mel Blanc as that uppity chicken. The South was a cartoon. I admit, the natives played along. They scammed the hicks by selling more and more preposterous stories about white columns and crazy aunts in the attic. They cooked up as much gothic kitsch as the market would bear. A guy from St. Louis renamed himself Tennessee and made a mint. It was a great racket, but it meant the southerners never really saw themselves on screen. They still don't. Counselor! Is that you? It was the remake of Cape Fear that gave me my moment of clarity. I hunkered in a Manhattan multiplex awestruck. Robert De Niro was trying to impersonate a dirt-eating psycho, and yes, it was nuts, but not the way De Niro intended. I'm out, come out wherever you are. New York Mook was bumping uglies with Cajun and Carolina. It was the worst thing I'd ever heard. I rolled in it like a happy doggy with something dead. It's going to take a hell of a lot more than that, counselor, to prove you're better than me. When it was over and the credits drifted past, I locked on to the one that read Dialect Coach. Now I knew. After that, every time Foghorn turned up in a movie, I checked to see who his dialect coach was. Every southern expat I knew came out of Cape Fear going, huh? But the man who taught De Niro to sound like an Appalachian Springsteen was so proud, he bragged about it. I would see his ads in the showbiz trade papers and get all twitchy. To Robert De Niro, congratulations, Sam Schwa. Well, my name is Sam Schwa. I'm director of New York Speech Improvement Services. We're the largest company of licensed speech therapists in this country to... Uh, we're the largest company of licensed speech therapists in the United States, specializing in accent acquisition and accent elimination. I dropped in on Schwa at his Manhattan offices, where boxes of celebrity junk spilled onto the floor. He was born and raised in Brooklyn speaking Yiddish, and he's never lived more than an hour from Grand Central. But he has a master's in speech and 20 years of experience in accents. At first, he specialized in removing them. Then he started doing implants. I trained Robert De Niro to do uh, an Appalachian accent for Cape Fear, Leonardo DiCaprio, uh, a New York accent for Basketball Diaries. Uh, Julia Roberts and Andy McDowell lost their southern accents with me before their film careers began. Um, Elle McPherson, Kathleen Turner, Benjamin Bratt, a wide variety of people. What would you say you're best at amongst the accents that you know? 
Oh. I suppose my Italian is all right, you know. Uh, my Italian itself is not no so good, you know, but I, um, I, I do a pretty good uh, Italian. His southern accent was every bit as convincing. He told me he had a whole posse of relatives down in Savannah who taught him the local lingo. He demonstrated. It depends on the sort of southern accent you're talking about. Okay. If there's, um, if it's sort of an Appalachian sort of accent, uh, it's um, it's one that uh, th that I've taught many, many times. Um, there's a kind of broad-based one, more indicative of, say, uh, the Deep South, uh, where the the R's disappear after the vowel, let's say. Which is Hollywood Southern in a nutshell. It's the way people in movies talk, not people in real life. I told Schwa I'd never met anyone who spoke with the thing he was calling a southern accent. I pointed out that the people who dropped their R's were not the same people as the ones who said lack, and now the R-less people were almost extinct anyway. He defended himself, he backpedaled, and often he stayed silent. He told me I had a sensitive ear. But it doesn't take a sensitive ear. Listen to this clip from one of his star clients. My daddy catches you in here. The question of whether or not I can carry your children will not matter. He will set your thing off. That's Julia Roberts in Steel Magnolias. A linguist will tell you that a middle-class 20-something in that town in that recent year would say her R's. She'd say weather and your and matter. A linguist told me that. Bashwa has bought into the cartoon so completely, he thinks Roberts herself used to talk that way when she was growing up in suburban Atlanta. He claims that back before she was a star, when he helped her get rid of her southern accent, here were the things he had to fix. Pretty garden variety southern substitutions. Um, tin instead of ten. Uh, the, the I for I, uh, dropping an R after a vowel. Here, there, more, instead of uh, here, there, or more. Except, of course, she didn't talk that way. If you want confirmation, all you have to do is ask someone who knew her then. I've been a guidance counselor at uh, Campbell High School for 21 years. I asked Richard Epps, a guidance counselor at her Smyrna, Georgia high school, who doesn't talk that way either. Uh, she was a student here, and uh, she was a student aide in, in our office. So you had daily contact with her? Yes, surely did. Now, in the, in the 20, this will be your 21st year. Yes, in, the, in the 21 years that you've been at Campbell High School, right? have you had any white students who drop their R's? I don't recall any of that at all. Um, I don't recall any, to tell you the truth. How about Julia? Did Julia ever drop her R's? Absolutely not. And that's why Robert sounds so fake when she drops them in Steel Magnolias, because she's never done it before. I guess what happened is that when she showed up on set with her own real suburban drawl, it wasn't close enough to the cartoon for the powers that be, and they sent for schwa. It's like something out of the movie Hollywood Shuffle. Some white guy telling a black actor, um, can you make that blacker? One reason Hollywood can't get Southern right is that Southern won't hold still. The real South is changing. Real Southerners go to malls and eat at the Olive Garden. The media tells them that the way they speak is either quaint or a symptom of gomerdom, so if they're the slightest bit upwardly mobile, they try not to sound too you-know-what.
Sometimes Hollywood does make a semi-honest effort to keep it real. Robert De Niro listened to real people speak for his role in Cape Fear. He sent his personal assistant into a southern prison to tape interviews with inmates of the same age, criminal record, and hillbilly bona fides as his character in the script. He picked a tape he liked and labored with Sam Schwa for weeks to perfect his imitation. Sometimes, however, the will, the intent, the technique is flawless, and the flesh still fails. I am like God, and God like me. I am as large as God. He is as small as I. He cannot above me, nor I beneath him be. Some actors just can't do accents. Counselor. Writer Mark Shoney Counselor. is a reporter living among the Yankees in New York City, hoping not to run into a certain actor. There's a southern accent Where I come from The young'uns call it country The Yankees call it dumb Act 4, Real Love there's the real thing when it comes to your idea of what job you want, what house you want, what person you want to fall in love with. And until you find the real thing that you seek, life is the same story over and over and over again, either played as comedy or as tragedy, the story of missing the real thing yet again. In one of her live shows, Los Angeles writer and performer Sandra Tsinglo tells what happened to her when she signed up for a computer dating service. A folder arrived with a name and some vital stats. Robert Blair, 37, single. I look in his folder... And I can't believe it. My mouth goes dry. For one thing, unlike what you'd expect from a dating service, Robert Blair is really, really attractive. No, I mean really. Straight nose, clean jawline, smoldering blue eyes. We are talking Rafe Fines. <laughs> Rafe Fines has basically donned a crew neck sweater and is living among us in the Southland. <laughs> I turn the page. Robert Blair is an architect by profession. Time has been spent in Italy. Interests include opera, foreign movies, badminton, marital status. Never. My heart is pounding. My eyes are tearing up. Oh, my God. I'm thinking, oh, my God. And, 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 and this panic is starting to seize me. Not just the primary panic of having found the perfect man, but the secondary panic of knowing that other women are looking at this perfect man. And then the tertiary panic of realizing that I'm feeling this panic. And when you feel panic, dates don't tend to go well. <laughs> Somehow the panic invades your face, causing these contortions to happen. In the middle of some casual comment, like, would you like some half and half? equal, your face will split open and this demon is will come out. And in that instant, you have done it, that terrible, unthinkable thing. You have pierced the dating membrane. That is, the membrane that covers all dating people and keeps them safe from each other. As illustration, take Philip, a perfect Los Feliz bachelor I was privileged to date a few times. You know the type. Successful 36-year-old film editor or something. 
great haircut, zippy Hugo Boss jacket. You know, one of those smart, funny, presentable men who form that eerie, hollow-eyed children of the corn phalanx across our fair city. <laughs> Anywho, like others of his ilk, the perfect fill-up package was coated with this impenetrable dating membrane. To wit, you were supposed to see Philip once a week at most, twice a month more typically, but you were never to contact him in between, as though he were some sort of undercover spy. <laughs> to phone him at work was to trigger that, that bomb thing. Anyway, <laughs> Philip kept trying to train me in the new system, and I knew that I should get with it. I knew that it was the law of dating land, and that if I didn't follow it, I would lose my all-important dating land citizenship. I wouldn't be allowed to go out on any more meaningless, unfun dates such as these. So, Philip would smile suavely the next morning, handing me my delicious, warm, fresh pumpkin muffin to go. Call you in ten days or so? Ten days! That's almost two weeks! I'd stab out in alarm, eyes wide. Picture last night's mascara gone spookily raccoony. I'm out of town, he'd enunciate as you do when telling a large wattled eager Labrador to sit. But she cannot quite remember how, he repeated the command. I'm out of town, out of town. In ten days or so, I will call you. Okay, I'll call you. Really? Oh, I remembered the drill. Dutifully, I repeated the phrases he had taught me, unnatural as Arabic. Well, have a great time. Jeez, I've got a busy week too. Call me whenever. It is no problem at all. But once I got going, I just couldn't stop. So there's the phone. You call me. I won't call. No, no, no. Delivery became so broad, so garish, so, so, so Joanne Morley-like. That like a rare stag in the woods, my perfect bachelor would be spooked. And after 10 days or so, Philip did not call. I can't. But I'm not going to make that mistake tonight. Oh, no. For once in my life, things are going to be different. For once in my life, I'm going to be silent. The forest green door opens, and there stands Robert Blair. Crisp white linen, pressed khakis, tortoiseshell rims, Oh, my God, I think, feeling the force of gravity buckling my knees. Hello, is all I say, Robert. <laughs> With perfect manners, Robert Blair shows me around his perfect place. We are talking coved ceilings, Mexican paver tile, totally redone hardwood floors, muted track lighting, sub-zero fridge, even a utility sunroom with a pull-out ironing board. You can almost hear a choir of angels singing. <laughs> Sandra, Robert says behind me, would you like some champagne? <laughs> and there stands Robert Blair with two gleaming flutes of champagne and an Italian hand-painted ceramic plate upon which he's arranged gorgonzola cheese, grapes, and English watercrackers in a perfect fan. 
I am home. I find myself thinking, I am home. The bistro Robert takes me to is a delightful, intimate place, aglow with little candles. You like opera? I say. Yes, he says. I do. I've heard Madame Butterfly is coming to the music center. I saw something about it in the Los Angeles Times. Really, he says. Did you? Maybe we could. No, too early. Retract. It's just such a great opera, is all. I love it. I love opera. Butterfly's all right, he says, for a war horse. Americans certainly insist on their favorites. I sometimes think if I'm forced to sit through another bohème, I'll scream. Yes, I know what you mean. The opera world is also exhausting, isn't it? His smoldering blue eyes meet mine. Lock. Yes, my dear, he says. Exhausting. What does that mean? <laughs> I think. Wait a minute. Well, relax, breathe. The guy works a ten-hour day. He went to the trouble of laying out English water crackers for you in that perfect fan. It's not that he's not having fun; it's just that he's really, really tired. And now I remember this happy thing. Okay, this is really good. In Robert's kitchen was this really, really fancy cappuccino maker because cappuccino was his habit. That's what he called it. My habit. And I think that's what Robert Blair needs after dinner: some caffeine, a lift. But the thing is, we can't have it here. We can't have it in this restaurant, even though it's an Italian restaurant. And espresso machines keep whirring, whirring, whirring around us. Because to prolong the date, to kick things to that higher level, we need to move to a new venue to do a new activity. My God, it's barely 8:20, and the guy is all yawning and looking at his watch and going cappuccino. I say brightly, I guess you make a mean cup of it, huh? Well, he says, but then that slightly closed expression crosses his face. He pushes up his glasses. Well, no. But your machine, I say, in your kitchen, it doesn't work. He says abruptly, it doesn't work. No, no, it is not that it does not work. It is just that it needs a, a new filter, a new water filter. You don't just use the filtered water from the white Rita jug thing in your Sub-Zero fridge. Well, you could, but it is just not good. Well, I. Cappuccino. I forge on, hacking through the dense rubbery foliage with my scimitar. And you must be missing it if you can't make it at home. I know I miss things when I can't make them at home. Even when we're at Tech, I go, you know, they'll be like, hey, that's kind of that kind of great idea. Why don't we go to a great cappuccino bar? I know just a short walk from here in La Brea. Clutching his arm, my hand like a pinion, I see myself reflected in Robert Blair's perfect tortoiseshell glasses. My mascara is raccoony hair, a fright wig. I have come to my date dressed like a hyena, and I cannot. Stop talking. <laughs> It was fun, Robert Blair says, giving me a quick peck on the cheek at the door. Sorry about having to bail early. It's just that I'm really, really tired. But um, thank you. The forest green door shuts behind him. Locks. There are footfalls. A moment later, a light goes on upstairs. That moment, 
I realize that Robert Blair is completely happy behind that curtain, alone in the perfect palace he took such great pains in showing me. He is probably leaping about in boyish stockinged feet on his perfectly appointed couches, love seats, and pillows, throwing his arms up, jubilant, free of the burden of me. It makes me furious. I begin to shake at the iron rods of the locked gate, shake them with all my might. I am not done with this evening, I yell. I am not done. You don't even have to talk to me. We don't even have to see each other again. But I want that cut of cappuccino, and I want it uh, frothy. But there's no answer. After a moment, ever so distantly, behind double panes of glass, I hear it. The rattle of a paper, pop open of a cork, and inevitably, the gentle murmurings of CNN. Well, I went and lost her to the great imposter. Writer Sandra Tsinglo, her one-woman show Aliens in America runs at the Tiffany Theater in Los Angeles through October. Well, our program is produced today by Alex Bloomberg and myself with Susan Burton, Blue Chevany, Nancy Updike, and Julie Snyder. Contributing editors Paul Tuff, Jack Hitt, Margie Rocco, Elise Spiegel, and consigliere Sarah Val. Production help from Todd Bachman, Starley Kine, and Sylvia Lima. Special thanks today to Cynthia Bernstein, Larry Josephson, Mike Clardy, and Marjorie Lohman. Today we say a temporary goodbye to Sylvia Lemus, who talked her way into a position here not long after she first appeared on our program in January of 1998 on her 18th birthday, talking about her Mexican mother's expectations of her and her expectations of herself. She's now off to college to pursue the life that she talked about pursuing back then. We wish her the best. We send her off with love. We expect to hear from her soon on these airwaves. If you would like to buy a cassette of this program, or that one, call us here at WBEZ in Chicago, 312-832-3380. Or you know you can listen to most of our programs for free on the Internet, www.thislife.org. Thanks to Elizabeth Meister, who runs the site. This American Life is distributed by Public Radio International. Funding for our program has been provided by Amazon.com. The books and music that you hear in This American Life are available on Amazon.com, where there are 4.7 million video, CD, and book titles online at www.amazon.com. Other funding comes from the Capital Group Companies, investing for individuals and institutions throughout the world and sponsor of the American Funds Group of Mutual Funds, from the Ford Foundation, a resource for innovative people and institutions worldwide, and from the Corporation of Public Broadcasting, the National Endowment for the Arts, and the listeners of WBEZ Chicago. WBEZ Management Oversight by Tori Malatia, who may have sidled up to you on a school bus years ago and said, Groundhog, my mama don't eat it, but my daddy do. I'm Ira Glass, back next week with more stories of this American life. It's good with gravy. And she soon to join the roster. PRI Public Radio International.